everything that moves. I don't care who it is. Let's go. Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. Welcome, everybody, to another week. It's week seven. The Eagles coming off a huge win. 27-0, blackout shutout Sunday, Eagles win over the New York Giants. Greg, obviously this was the first game this season where we didn't get to watch together. I'm here with NFL Film Senior Producer Greg Cosell. Sorry, I didn't even introduce you yet. Uh, Greg, this was the first week that you and I didn't watch the game right. together all season. Uh, how tough was it to be apart together for the, for the first time? Oh, I don't know. I, it was tough to get through the game, you know? Yeah, I, you know, I found myself, I was on the sideline, and I fe- this was the first time actually that I had been – on the sideline for a game in three years, uh, at least in a regular season game. And I found myself watching the game from the scoreboard because I'm so used to looking at it from that angle. So I was I was like, like, friend, you're on the sideline. Like, watch the game from the sideline. And I just still found myself, my eyes going up to the scoreboard to see if I can watch the high angle. Well, you know, it's so funny. When I watch games, and, and usually if, 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 let's say, the Eagles play at night or as this week, so I was home during the day watching games, and – you know, everybody asks me how I watch the games, and I just watch them as a fan on Sundays you know, because I know I'm going to see the tape, so right. I pretty much put on red zone and just let the plays wa- uh, wash over me. But when I'm sitting here watching the Eagles game, because that's the only game I'm watching when I'm with you guys, I find myself frustrated because I'm so used to seeing the game from the perspective of the All-22 that when I see plays, and they don't have to be big plays. You know, I'm not talking about 40-yard right. touchdowns. I'm just talking about plays. I get so frustrated because I know something really interesting happened, and I can't see it from the TV, you know, the TV version, so to speak, and until I then get to the office and start watching the coaching tape. Right, exactly right. So uh, let's get into the meat of it here. Obviously, the defense. What, I mean, what can you say? Oh. Just what a, what a performance by Billy Davis's unit. Uh, we've been talking about it all year long. I feel like how you could see this scheme starting to develop, the guys starting to buy in. We saw it last year with the effort that they played with, and obviously there were some lapses here and there this year, and really everything just kind of came together Sunday night. Well, this kind of defense, and again, we've talked about this before, Bill Davis cut his teeth with Dick LeBeau, Dom Capers, multiple concept defensive coaches. And at the end of the day, those kinds of things take time, and it's – this kind of defense, I always describe these kinds of defenses as these are scheme defenses more than what we call execution defenses, which doesn't mean, of course, that you don't have to execute, but there's a lot of concepts, a lot of principles, there's a lot of scheming. It's not like teams that, let's say, are founded in cover two, where there are not a lot of concepts. They're built more on the execution of a few concepts. This is built more on multiple concepts, and those take time. And what while you're in the process of doing that, as we saw last year, you have some good days, you have some bad days. And good quarters and bad quarters. Exactly. No question. Good plays, bad plays. Right. So what we saw the other night, and, and keep in mind, the Giants had been pretty good offensively the previous three weeks. Two of the previous three weeks, they'd gained over 400 yards no, of offense. No question. They were humming the last three weeks. Right. And, and they looked good doing it. I right. mean, it was a rhythmic, flowing type offense. And... This defense, the one thing that that struck me, and I I didn't necessarily chart it because the numbers is not that important, but just the number of different fronts 
alignments, utilization of personnel, people in different places was just staggering. You know, I bet there was something different on each of the first 30 plays. And that's hard for, for an offense to deal with, no matter how good your quarterback is, because he's not the only one who has to deal with it. The entire offense has to deal with it. No question about it. I mean, there's a, a great mix of man and zone coverages, of combo coverages. Uh, different guys were double teamed, different, uh, you know, from play in and play out. Uh, obviously, up front with all the different pressures. And really, I mean, look, taking the scheme out of it, when there were one on one battles, oh. and there were lots of them, the Eagles came out on and, top more often than not. And two things struck me, and they're related. Number one, the Eagles, in normal down and distance situations, stayed with their base 3 4 personnel when the Giants had three wide receivers on the field, which meant that Nate Allen was lined up predominantly over Victor Cruz, and they were okay with that. But the second part of that, the, the corollary to that was they basically had a five-man D-line because those two outside linebackers, Barwin and Cole, they're just standing up, but they're basically line-of-scrimmage players. Yep. And what that created, what they did was their three-down linemen is they squeezed them inside in what we call a reduced front. So the nose Benny Logan was over the center, and Thornton and Cox were almost directly over the guards yep, or a little the on the up. shoulder like three techniques. Right. And then you had Cole and Barwin outside. So what that dictates is one-on-one matchups with the Giants' offensive line. And I, I firmly believe, because this is what Bill Davis did, that he did it because he felt they could win those one-on-one matchups. And, by the way, they won those one-on-one no, matchups. No question about it. I mean, And when you line up that way— not only for pass protection, but also in the oh. run game. It's really, really hard. You know, if you want to try and double team and, and get guys at the point of attack, whether you're running power or inside zone, a lot of these runs that the Giants like to run, it brings problems to those run schemes. That's a great point because it also fit in with the Giants running back. Andre Williams is not going to bounce. No. He's an inside runner. So now you have your two inside backers, uh, D'Amico Ryans and the and the Acho Matthews combination. Basically, they are free to get to the football because that offensive line can't work up to the second level. That's a great point. Yep. So now they can just see what's in front of them and react. And it really, I actually just thought of that right now when you said it, and it's it really enhances the point. The kind of runner Williams is, this kind of defense also fit perfectly because he's a straight downhill runner without a whole lot of lateral agility so many of those runs I can think of you know in my mind's eye I can see Casey Matthews scraping over the top on one of those outside runs yep. where he's trying to string it outside to the defense's left uh, and Matthews bringing him down for a loss I remember and that play. another one to the yeah. right actually where D'Amico did the same thing yep. where Trent Cole has Larry Denell at the point of attack and he's trying to string it out because there's nowhere for him to cut back inside and D'Amico brings him down for a loss so to your point those are the two examples of that exact play so it was a really it was it was a great game plan approach totally understanding the nature of your opponent and it worked really effectively and and I think to some degree that's been a little lost in this season is for the most part this defense has played well and it's improving uh, and and this week obviously was the shining moment up to this point a nice way to go into the to the bye week uh, because obviously when you're when you're coaching with a Chip Kelly team the focus is the offense deservedly so but Bill Davis has really done a terrific job. No, no, no question about it. Absolutely. I mean, you lo- you look at guys, and again, we t- we talked about it last week. Some of these guys like Brandon Graham, Vinnie Curry, Casey Matthews, everybody really stepping up, and honestly, they're playing the best football of their career right now. Vinnie Curry, and he may, you know, 
snap count wise, I don't know, it's 20, 25 snaps a game, give or take. I think it was actually really high this was week. Was it high this I week? I think it was really Might high have been. this week. I, I, I well, I think a lot of guys play later in the game yeah, that that's part you know, of it. just got sure. snaps. Good point. If, that, but, but clearly he's kind of a rotational, situational, sub-package kind of player. That's what he is. He has played really, really well. I mean, what does he have? Four sacks? Something? Got, I believe it's three or four sacks. Uh, the sack that he had this week where he, I mean, it was a near 180-degree turn yeah. where he came back around, stuck his foot in the ground, bend and turned the corner, like I said, around 180 degrees, not even a normal 90-degree turn, came back around and was able to get mad. Yeah, so, sack. I mean, he's, and Brandon Graham has played really well with the snaps he's gotten. I mean, they are really getting, uh, Brandon Bear, I thought, had some nice snaps this week as well. You know, they're getting really solid play from a lot of different people. And a play that I believe you're using in the in the matchup show this week. Oh, yeah. we talk well, about for next week for, for when next the Eagles week. play okay. again. I think you know we haven't mapped that show out, but I want to do it. Okay, so you're you're going to use that for next week, and then we're talking about it this week for Eagles game plan. We've seen some new wrinkles from this pressure scheme from Bill Davis as well. Yeah, I mean it was the fourth play of the game, and the Giants were in a three by one set, and the Eagles looked like they were in press man, man free, and and. Eli dropped back, and he was getting ready to throw. There were three slants, basically, you know, triple glance on the three-receiver side. And as soon as I saw the play, because he wanted to get the ball to Randall, who was the middle receiver on the three-receiver side, and Nate Allen was actually over Victor Cruz to start, and Victor Cruz was the inside slot. And right as Eli is ready to pull the trigger, Nate Allen dropped off Cruz, passing Cruz on to D'Amico Ryans in the middle, and he dropped right into the passing lane uh, to, to Ruben Randall. And Eli, to his credit, pulled the ball down, but then he moved right into Barwin's first sack. And as soon as I saw that play, I said to myself, that was Malcolm Jenkins' interception against the San Francisco 49ers. Exactly. It was the exact same defense. Same defense is against the same round concept pretty much, too. I it mean, was I, just I, a two-by-two two set as, as opposed, opposed to three-by-one, three and it was Malcolm Jenkins who was actually lined up over the slot receiver, passed him on to D'Amico. Right. Same situation. And Colin Kaepernick, unlike Eli, he just pulled the trigger anyway, and he threw it right to Malcolm Jenkins, and he returned it for a touchdown. The one difference I did notice with this one was uh, in the previous play. They were in dime. They were in dime. This Nolan Carroll was the one pressuring. And this time we actually had Casey Matthews yep. uh, back, looking like he was going to be back in coverage. He was lined up stacked behind the line of scrimmage. And then you had D'Amico sugaring the gap. And right. they switched right. Ap uh, after the snap where D'Amico dropped off yep. and Casey blitzed. Yep. So it was – a lot of interesting stuff, and another play as well that we haven't talked about yet on, in this space is uh, the the pressure Malcolm Jenkins brought on third down in that play in the third. I believe it was the second, second quarter, second, second late quarter. in the second quarter, which was beautifully designed. See, that's one of the trends in the NFL now is a gap pressure, yeah. and so many teams try to go about doing it in different ways. That's sort of become, I think, you know, for, for the for, for the you know the Dr. Frankenstein's of defensive coordinators, it's how do you produce a gap pressure, particularly against pocket type quarterbacks like an Eli Manning. Right. And this play was so great because the defensive ends widened. The they actually had Barwin and Cole standing up on the inside as stacked linebackers, and they attacked the outside shoulder of the guard and center respectively, and that opened the inside for Malcolm Jenkins. Yeah. And it was beautifully done. Jenkins had a clean run right away. And, you know, that's the other thing about what defenses are doing, not just Bill Davis, but across the league, is 
when you get into the nickel, the dimes, and a lot more teams are playing dime, is you're getting faster players doing this. So instead of a linebacker or a 245 or, you know, this is Malcolm Jenkins, a safety. He gets there in a hurry if no one blocks him. That's right. And it, it, one of the things uh, that was really, really interesting, obviously, this is a blitz that's very similar to what we've seen over the last couple of years in Arizona with Todd Bowles. Yep. Todd Bowles does this yep. a lot down in Arizona. You wonder if they saw this on tape because uh, I believe Arizona did play the Giants. Was it was earlier in the year, or is this earlier in the year? Yeah, earlier in the year. I'm tr- trying yep. to remember which week it was, but uh, obviously just a, gr- a great pressure scheme, and the, the the seas just parted there, where you know you had, you had Trent Cole and Connor Barwin take the guard in the center out of the picture, and uh, Malcolm Jenkins comes free. No, and it was great, and that's that's the reason I love football because that, to me that's the academic part of football, and particularly with defense. You know, you see it on both sides, obviously, but defense. So many of these pressure schemes are designed for a specific player. You can see that the scheme is meant for that. That scheme was meant for Malcolm Jenkins to come free. No question about it. Let's switch gears here a little bit to the offensive side. Uh, Nick Foles, obviously, it wasn't a perfect game. He had two interceptions. Uh, the one, obviously, where he's trying to throw the ball out of bounds there, and he gets picked off by Antro Roll. Uh, but you have really a game where I thought he was a bit more decisive in this game yeah. than we've seen in recent weeks, and that was good to see. Yeah, I thought he was a bit more decisive overall. I still would say his performance was probably a little more uneven than you would like, uh, but he was a little more decisive. I thought they tried to get the ball out quicker, Yep. and he did a pretty good job with that. You made a point before we started the podcast that there were a couple of throws where he, he looked one way and came back to the other side quickly with a sense of timing. Exactly. N- not as if he was just sort of randomly coming back to the other side. There was a sense of timing to yeah, it. Yeah, it was two, two plays in the first quarter. I remember they ran the same route combination. They ran a snag concept to the right side, and they had Riley Cooper running a dig to the backside, and he immediately checked from, from the right side to the left, threw the ball immediately, right. pulled the trigger, and hit uh, Riley Cooper for a first down both times. and. You know, it's those kind of plays that, look, we saw him make those those throws last year decisively and got the ball out quickly, and it was yeah. good to see that going into the bye week. And you got to talk about the run game because Absolutely. the run game to me, and again, it's easy to look at the yardage and say it was successful, but Chip Kelly made a number of adjustments. And, you know, he came in with a belief, and I run this kind of offense, this is what I do. And, you know, in the NFL, every coach, every coach, and, and Chip to me is one of the smartest there is, but every coach – goes through a period where their stuff doesn't work and you've got to make some some tweaks, some adjustments. It's, hey, you're in the NFL. This is this is the highest level. And right away from play one, falls under center, a misdirection concept. And you saw some counter. I mean, when have you we seen this seen stuff with the Eagles? Yep. You know, normally it's just the quarterback and the shotgun. And, you know, and, and it's funny because the touchdown that he threw to James Casey came out of three tight ends. They had shown that earlier and run the ball the out of it. sweep from under center, yeah. Yeah, so, the, you know, the compliment, you know, it strikes me watching two years, a year and a half now of Chip Kelly, and I, and I watched him in Oregon a bit too, but not the same way I'm watching him now with the Eagles. He's a big believer in complimentary plays, and he'll repeat plays. You know, he's not just interested in running, you know, and having a playbook that's a phone, a phone uh, book. You know, he... Run, run your plays, run them well, and have compliments off of the plays. And that will break down defenses. And I think he does that exceptionally well. One of the, the best things about that, uh, that counter play, obviously, you know, from the snap, I mean, LaShawn McCoy takes his first step and, and his, as Chip likes to turn, his angle of departure, it looks like it's going to be their base inside zone. I mean, he's going, yep. he's going right. The offensive line's all going right. And then 
Nick Foles is going to the left side, and Nick or, uh, LaShawn McCoy puts his foot in the ground. He's going left, and there's nobody on the backside. Brent Selleck did a great job blocking the backside DN yep. on a number of those different runs. And it, when they when the Giants, they got burned by that play a couple times early in the game. They started to counter and have somebody there, and we would bring somebody in motion, and they were cracking you know, cracking right, the backside right. defenders. They did such a great job of executing that play. I thought play. Selleck had a really nice game blocking. He did. He yeah. did. There was a there was actually another play, a swing pass, I believe, to Darren Sproles where he pinned uh it was a safety, but he got the guy to the ground. It was and a five yard gain. The other thing we saw, play. which we really hadn't seen this year, was the sweeps, the outs you know, the toss plays. Yeah, because they haven't I mean, been able to run it. No, they haven't been able to run it. And and the McCoy uh had one and then Sproles finished the drive with one to the other side. And I, I know um I think in both instances David Mulk pulled. Yep. Uh, I think the one to the right, it was Harriman's. The one to the left, Peters pulled, not the guard. Right. Yep. But but um, David Mulk showed a lot on that play. And, yep. you know, he's not a big center, and he was known more as a movement center than a strength center. And maybe as he gets a little more comfortable, I mean, obviously Kelsey's coming back, and Kelsey is arguably the best center in the game, so it's not like Mulk's going to take his spot. Right. But, I mean, it, it seemed like they were able to run their offense a little better this week. No question about it. And, you know, we saw so many different things from a lot of those guys up front. I thought Matt Tobin probably played his best overall game you. in yep. the three weeks that he's been in the lineup. Uh, David Mulk has gotten better week in and week and out. Peters is just so good. Oh, he's he had probably his best game P of the year. You know too, what? There's he's very very athletic. We know that, but he's got a little bit of a nasty streak oh, too, yeah. which that's what you want from right. offensive linemen. Absolutely. So. Uh, just a great job up front by that, that Eagles offensive line, uh, really just around the board. I mean, what can you say? 27-0 going into the bye against the New York Giants. Just a great way to uh, you know to end the first six games of the season. Uh, looking around the division now, around the rest of the league, obviously the, one of the other big storylines, and I know people that were watching the game at home got a nice earful of this as we were watching the game on Sunday Night Football. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys went into Seattle and, and beat the defending Super Bowl champion Seahawks I have yet to watch the game. Obviously, we don't play the Cowboys until Thanksgiving, so it'll be some time before I really get to dig deep into them and study them. What did you see from that game? I mean, how were they able to pull this off? Well, the Cowboys have become a team that's pretty much the same every week. You know, it's funny because they're in some ways very old school now. They line up. The run game is their foundation. Their O-line is playing extremely well. Now, Doug Free's out for a couple of weeks. Uh, but their run game is their foundation. They're not a one-dimensional running team. They have a lot of different runs. But every good running team has a few staples. Outside zone would be their staple. Uh, DeMarco Murray is a better runner now than he's ever been. He's starting to, to punish people a little bit. He's very good at pressing the hole and then cutting away from it. So this is a team built on the run, and Tony Romo has really become kind of a complementary piece in, in this offense, but capable of making plays when necessary. Um, defensively, I think this is where your offense really helps your defense because they're not a great defense by any means, but when you can run the ball, and they run it traditionally, you know, it's not the quick game like Chip Kelly right. where you're snapping the ball with 20, you know, 23 seconds left on the play clock. They're running conventional offense, snapping the ball with, you know, three or four seconds, and um, that shortens the game. Their defense plays fewer snaps. The one thing I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see when we go to play you know the, the Cowboys on Thanksgiving, their offensive line against our defensive yeah. front is going to be a battle of behemoths. Because, a really good, I mean, a, really good matchup. It's going to be a really, really fun one to watch. I mean, and we've seen. Look, I mean, obviously this line at Washington is nowhere near what we're seeing in Dallas, but the the stretch play is their bread and butter as well. And we saw how, what they did to the to the stretch play against Washington. They were able to shut that down uh, for the most part for the entire game. So. 
Uh, it's going to be really, really interesting to see how that matchup folds. Has has Romo? You you brought up Romo and how obviously how he's become somewhat of a complimentary piece in that offense. Right. Has he gotten better throughout the? I know early in the season there were worries about oh you know is he all the way back or how can he drive the ball? Have, have you seen him develop? And I think get he's getting there? a little better. I think yeah. his movements become better. Um, but to their credit, they're not deviating from really to, to my way of thinking the only way they can play because of their defense right see if their defense has to play more they'll be exposed Fran. i mean this past week seattle ran 48 offensive plays 48 that's it wow that's it wow to give to give fan, like 48 in today's nfl is is, uh, is, is unbelievable absurd. i mean the average team i you know and i don't know i'm i'm completely guessing oh it's definitely the, 65 it's plus the, i was gonna say yeah, it's in the, yeah, in the low yeah, 70s it's, it's, I would right guess. right it's Oh, wow. I, believe me, I know because when I start watching yeah. tape and I look at the play-by-play and I immediately go, oh, 72 plays. I, you know, no, no. So that's 48. Wow, 48. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. Wow. So they had the ball for over 38 minutes. See, that's an example. And and Chip Kelly, obviously, he doesn't have this approach and he has a different approach. But that's that team has to play that way because they're not good enough on defense. If their defense played 70 snaps a game, they'd be exposed. Right. Well, it's gonna, it's going to be really interesting to see. Obviously. A lot with that team really, I mean, relies on them being healthy in terms of Romo, who's right. obviously had the two back surgeries over two years. And then DeMarco Murray, who uh, has had his share of injury issues in the past and is finally starting to hit his, hit his stride. Those who don't remember, he took over for Adrian Peterson in Oklahoma and in his freshman year, everyone thought he was the next coming. I mean, right, you know, right. He was, the, he was the next guy. And then he had some injury issues at Oklahoma. I think he broke his leg one year, had some hand or wrist issues the year after that. And Never really even in the NFL, that. he's had exactly. some injuries. And then in the in the NFL, same thing. So, uh, you know, seeing him come to his own as a former third round pick for them, obviously, it's great. Uh, looking around the league, is there anything else? Obviously, that's caught your eye. What about? Well, let me ask you this: Seattle. One yeah. week, one week they they go to Washington and really, I mean, offensively, especially early in the game, looked unstoppable. And now you go against Dallas and against a, a team that defensively, you know, talent-wise, that it may not be there, and they only run 48 plays and can't get anything yeah, going. Th- this is something we've debated. You know, we have this conversation in our matchup office. I've had it with a lot of different people about the nature of, of offense and, and the nature of quarterback play in the NFL. Uh, everybody throws out now, as if it's gospel, that the quarterback position is changing. But I think for teams that have quarterbacks that can make plays improvisationally, and, and, of course, that gives you, you know, the read option and the deception element in your offense. Sometimes I think you have to be careful because I think when you, your offense is built – not built, but when, when deception and quarterback random improvisation s- start to become the things that are the reason you win games, those things to me are more outliers than – than the norm, and I think you have to be a little careful. Now, Seattle's a good team. I'm not suggesting now they're going to go five and eleven. Okay, they're a really good team, right. and Russell Wilson is a very good quarterback. But I think you have to be careful being enamored with your quarterback's ability to make improvisational plays, because it's hard if those don't occur. They didn't occur this week against Dallas, by the way. So they struggle to move the football. They well, didn't occur against Dallas with those random plays. I mean, that by definition, they're random. Sometimes aren't they're not going to happen, right? And what people lose sight of is improvisation. By its very nature, is random. It's not always positive, right? It can be negative. And that was something that we, I know we, you and I had talked early in the year uh, about Green Bay and some of the issues. Obviously, a lot of people were down on the Packers early and uh, the R E L A X from Aaron Rodgers and telling everybody to relax. 
he's very much an improvisational quarterback yes, as is. well, and they had some issues early on because of it. And they may still, in, depending on the given game. Right. You know, he's he's super talented, and oftentimes he can make plays late in the down that other quarterbacks can't because his arm talent is ridiculous. But it's hard, you know, it, so when he had those bad games, let's put it this way, what's wrong with Aaron Rodgers? What, what, what's wrong? In a sense, nothing's wrong. It's just if you're going to play that way, sometimes that happens. It can happen in a given week. And ultimately, if, you, if, if that's the way you're going to play, then you've got to live with it. And what's funny is I, I know that obviously one week everyone's like, well, what's wrong with Aaron Rodgers? The next week he comes out, he throws four touchdowns against the Bears, and he's like, oh, Aaron Rodgers is back. Everything's good to go. And right, right. And it's really the same thing with Seattle as well. I mean, I'm sure – and I haven't heard it as much because I've really been kind of diving into the, the Eagles this week. But i got to think that after what happened on Monday Night Football two weeks ago with Seattle and then coming to this week, crashing back down to earth, i got to think that people out west are saying, well, what's going on here? Like, you know, how, how can we look this way one week and then the following week look like that? And you know? looked at that Seattle-Washington game, didn't you? I did. I did watch that so game. So you know in that game – that there were a number of uh, a couple, not a number. I don't want to make it seem like there were twenty of them. You know, yeah. two, three, of well-designed route concepts that broke down the defense at the intermediate to deeper levels. And Russell Wilson never got to those. Now he ran on those plays and gained yards. And gained yards. And yep. gained yards. And everyone said, "Wow, you know, how can you not cover right. Russell Wilson? How can you not?" And keep him what contained? I'm always fascinated with, and and is how quarterbacks are mobile quarterbacks are coached. Because I don't know that. I'm not in the coaches' meetings. I don't know that. It's something I'm going to actually try to find out when I go to the Combine this year and talk right. to people. I'm curious when the design of the route concept works and the re one of the receivers is open based on the route concept and the mobile quarterback doesn't throw the ball but instead, let's say, runs for 15 yards. In the meeting the next day, is that said, hey, great job? Or do they say, hey, we called this play to get this and it was there you have to throw that ball. I don't know the answer to this question. Right. And so I'm not going to presume to, but it's just something I think about with these quarterbacks that can move who at times don't throw the ball to open receivers within the, the context of the route concept. Well, I'm going to use this as a segue here because we, we talked before the show a little bit uh, about college football and just who we watched on Saturday, and you told me that you watched Auburn-Mississippi State. You right. A good amount of that game. Uh, their quarterback at, at Auburn, Nick Marshall, uh, obviously one of those guys who's you know a, a big, lanky kid, former defensive back at Georgia, obviously has a lot of athleticism and slings it all over the place and makes some of those kind of plays where – Wow, you know, if you look at look at him run outside the pocket and make you know break down the defense and, and make a throw on the run or uh, you know beat a, beat a defender to the corner and, and take it to the house. When you look at Nick Marshall, what are some of the things that you're seeing? Well, it's funny you say that because ultimately, what the question becomes for these kinds of quarterbacks is: Is Russell Wilson now a prototype? You know, in years past, we always felt like we knew what a prototype NFL quarterback looked like. Right, and. Yes, you could argue to some degree that's changing. I mean, obviously, just a pure statue pocket player. I mean, unless a guy's – I mean, Phillip Rivers is dynamite in that role. There's not a lot of Phillip Rivers. Right. Okay? So the question becomes, is a Russell Wilson type player now becoming – because Nick Marshall's not built like a Cam Newton. He's not built like a, like a Colin Kaepernick. He's more like a Russell Wilson. I mean, he's a little bit bigger, but he's not a big, big kid. Right. You know, so – the question becomes, is Russell Wilson a prototype? Are, are, are people going to look at the Nick Marshalls of the world, and there'll be more of those guys in college football probably than Phillip Rivers kinds of guys. 
So are people going to look at the Nick Marshalls and say, ha, there's, there's a potential next Russell Wilson-type player? I haven't studied him enough to know the answer to that. I'm just trying to put it in a context. Right, exactly. And, you know, you, you look around the around college football right now, I mean, there's all the, all these guys all over the place. I know, you know, Rakeem Cato down in Marshall is a, is a similar type of guy. Who I'm very anxious smaller, to look at after the season. Right. I mean, he's another one of these smaller guys who's athletic. I think he's got a little bit more pocket skills just watching from afar than, than some of these other guys. But, you know, just because he's been a four-year starter and somewhat of a pro-style system down there at Marshall – uh, but there's a team that runs 100 plays a game. Yeah, another one. Can't exactly. wait to watch that yeah, once the season ends. Uh, but you know, it, it's going to be really interesting to see some, how some of these guys develop. And and look, obviously, completely different, uh, completely different systems offensively in terms of what they're asked to do. But you look at a guy like Bryce Petty, who right. Another one of these up tempo offenses, and you know they move the ball and everything like that. But it's not like Aub- it's not like Auburn. It's not no, like Oregon no. where it's run based. A lot of this is pass based. It's, it's a very pass heavy offense. When you watch Baylor, just from afar, obviously. And I watched a lot of them this week. And I've seen Petty a little bit. I mean, I I haven't taken serious notes on him yet, but, uh, you know, Baylor has guys. Like last year I watched Baylor because they had a bunch of players. I mean, they always have players. Right. So you watch their offense. And, you know, Petty strikes me on TV as a guy with a good arm. You know, maybe not a cannon, but a good arm. Has the look of a pro-style pocket quarterback. Nice, easy release. Doesn't uh, doesn't uh, work hard to throw it. A nice, easy delivery. You know, the things you struggle with, and it requires hard evaluation, is he throws a lot to wide-open receivers in college because of the system, and he doesn't make a lot of throws with people around his body. And you always think about that with guys in, in college football. Um you know, I thought about that a lot with Derek Carr. He's shown up to this point that it looks like he's going to be able to handle that. Now, the sample size isn't large enough, but Derek Carr has not played in a game this year where you came away saying, oh, man, he's really not ready to play. Right. I mean, he's looked like he belongs on an NFL field. Which is funny because, you know, a year ago, eight months ago, when we talked, it was like, look, you know, you've got the Mettenbergers and you've got uh, the Bridgewaters and some of these other guys coming out. And you looked at Derek Carr, and you looked, other than Manziel, who was kind of in a class of his own, maybe Carr was one of those guys, look, he may not be ready to play right, right away. Maybe right, pump the brakes right. on starting him year one. And he's the one who's arguably having the most yeah. success. And it's, But, you know, what I come back to is he's a really good arm talent. He right. can make throws. And I'm telling you, I watched the game this past week when he threw the four touchdowns. I mean, obviously the pick at the end was an ill-advised decision, which young quarterbacks are want to make at times. Right. Uh, but he stands there. He's he's almost oblivious to people around him, which I, I thought might be an issue for him. And he stands, and he's got a quick delivery. There are times that his delivery looks a little like Aaron Rodgers. Interesting. You know, he has a very quick, compact delivery. Yeah, you know, it, it's going to be really interesting to see. And going back to Petty, uh, watching him as a junior, you know, I, I studied a, a few games of them You know, last last season, and obviously, I really like the the one receiver, Antoine Goodley, there. Who I, I we were talking before the podcast kind of reminds me of a of a Pierre Garcon just because of his build, right, and right. it, it kind of has that running back build for a receiver. I'm really anxious to kind of watch him this year. Uh, once we I get to start, you know, studying some of these college guys. Obviously, had some injuries earlier in the season, but 
Last year, I, I was kind of left wanting more from an arm standpoint because he was one of those offenses where you don't see him make a lot of those, tr- those right. drive throws. So, uh, you know, accuracy was another thing that, you know, that troubled me. But from an arm strength perspective, I'm really interested to see and, and the watch one more. Guy, the one guy to me who's going to be a very interesting litmus test, and again, I haven't studied him hard yet, and, and I don't, you know, NFL teams will do all this as well in the offseason. The one guy who could be a very interesting lit- litmus test is Hunley from UCLA. Yep. Because... Hunley is a big kid and a really good athlete. But, and I have no problem, I've actually watched a decent amount of tape on him over the last couple of years because every year I thought he was going to come out. Right. You know? yep. <laughs> so, so I've actually seen him on tape and I've seen him on TV. But he's an erratic thrower and he has very little feel within the pocket. the pocket. Yeah. So he's going to be a litmus test for where, you know, how NFL teams feel about guys who are really good athletes playing quarterback, but yet have very unrefined, quote-unquote, traditional quarterback skills. It's going to be very, very interesting to see if he's more along the lines of the, uh, let's see. E.J. Manuel? The E.J. Manuel, very good point. E.J. Manuel, who went 16th overall, I believe And they traded up to get him. They traded up to get him. Or is he more Taj Boyd, who ended up going in the sixth round, I believe, uh, to the Jets. Or are people going to think he's going to become Cam Newton? Now, Cam Newton's a much bigger – he's freakish. Hunley's not freakish. But, I mean, Hunley, you know, I'm talking about style of player, what you can do with that guy within your offense. No question. So, you're right. That's going to be a a very interesting case study. Uh, Greg, I think that's going to do it for this week. Very a good much. one. Thanks this was for, a good one. Absolutely. Thanks very much for joining us once again. Let's talk a little bit more college football. I'm going to keep that dis- discussion going here as we continue talking about the 2015 NFL Draft with my good buddy Dane Brugler from CBS Sports. All right, now it's time to welcome in for the second time this fall one of my good friends in the business, CBS Sports NFL Draft Analyst Dane Brugler. Dane, how are you today? Doing well, friend. How are you doing? Uh, doing all right, man. Hey, listen, it's uh, another week in college football. I just got done talking with Greg Cosell about Baylor quarterback Bryce Petty, and he was a guy I really wanted to continue that discussion with uh, with you. Petty, a guy, I had some injury issues earlier in the season. Healthy now, how has he looked so far to you, when you whenever you've watched this Baylor Bears team? Well, you know, with that pass-happy playbook, you know there's going to be fireworks, and we saw that on Saturday against TCU. Uh, you know, we have to give Petty credit for uh, coming back from the injuries and really battling back, uh, not only with the injuries, but on the field uh, against a TCU defense uh, that is a lot better than a team that gave up 60-plus points. Um, and, you know, to be down 21 points in the fourth quarter, uh, and, but never feel down, work your way back, uh, a lot of uh, credit goes to Bryce Petty in that offense. And when you talk about him projecting to the pros, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge for NFL scouts and evaluators because of the offense, that, that shotgun uh, zone read. There's a lot of uh, one-read plays, quick throws. Uh, so to me, I, I see a lot of uh, comparisons to like a Brandon Whedon type. Uh, he doesn't, Petty doesn't have quite the arm strength of Whedon, and obviously he's younger. It's not an exact comparison, but in terms of the offense they're coming from, translating from college to the pros, I think you can make some correlations there. Uh, Petty, he's a tough guy. He's physically strong. He's got decent size. Uh, he doesn't have that Whedon arm, but he can make every throw. Uh, but he does stare down uh, his targets. Uh, a lot of the reads are, um, you know, first reads. He doesn't progressively go through uh, each one of those reads. Uh, so that, that are questions you have for him moving to the next level. And then the pocket presence. You know, he's all obviously in shotgun mode uh, quite a bit. 
not asked to really read blitzes too much right now. So a lot of questions moving forward for Bryce Petty, but you know, I think right now you have to pencil him in as that top senior quarterback for next year's draft. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how he, his draft status evolves how, as we get closer to April's draft. Uh, a guy that I, I, you know, I watched, I just talked about it with Greg, but I watched him a lot as a junior. I wasn't really big on him. I know a lot of people kind of pegged him as uh, a high first-round talent, uh, and that, I think that opinion has changed for some uh, as, his, as the season has unfolded. I'll be really interested to see where he ends up getting drafted once we get to next spring. Uh, but moving on, I wanted to kind of take a look at your first mock draft, or not your first, but your most recent mock draft. I thought it was really interesting. At the very top, you have Jacksonville having the first pick, and Leonard Williams, the defensive tackle out of USC, 6'4", 290, obviously a great defensive player, but it's rare that we see a defensive tackle go number one. Do you think, I guess obviously, is this more of a, a shot at this draft class in general, or is this really just uh, says a lot about Leonard Williams' talent? I think it's more about Leonard Williams and the player that he is. And, you know, obviously we're still – we're not even halfway through the NFL season yet. Um, you know, we still have a long way to go before we know what that top five, top ten is going to look like in terms of draft order. But if the Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, the Oakland Raiders, uh, maybe even a few other teams end up with that number one overall pick, then I think it's fair to say that we will not see a quarterback go number one overall barring a trade. And if that is the case, I think Leonard Williams, not only is he deserving of that top pick, but I think there's a good chance we could see him go that high. Uh, you know, the big cat, as they call him, he moves so well for a guy that's almost 300 pounds. The flexibility, the fluidity, um, you know, from top to bottom, joint hips, lower body, he moves so well, so explosive. Um, you know, he does have a few areas where he needs to improve uh, you know, with holding the edge um, and being more of an anchor type of player. But just from the, the traits that he shows, the athletic skill set, he's also highly intelligent. Uh, he's more than just a physical marvel. Um, you know, the way he can break down the game, his awareness, uh, the way he moves. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy that are 220, 230 pounds that can't move like him. So I think there's a, a good chance if, if a team like uh, the Raiders or the Jacksonville Jaguars, if they get the number one overall pick and they stay at one, don't trade out, there's a good chance I think we could see Leonard Williams take that top spot. Well, moving through here with the rest of your mock draft, obviously we're not going to hit on every single guy here. Uh, number two, you've got Oakland taking Cedric Abui out of Texas A&M. That would be the third straight uh, left tackle coming out of uh, Texas A&M that would go in the top five. Number three, you've got Tampa Bay taking Marcus Mariota. I think that marriage with him and potentially Jeff Tedford as the offense coordinator would be interesting. Uh, New York Jets, Amari Cooper with the fourth overall pick. And here's a guy I wanted to ask you about. Number five, you've got the Washington Redskins. Landon Collins, the safety out of Alabama, who's a junior, who obviously, you know, we, we don't know if he's going to declare yet. 6'2", 220 pounds, one of those do-it-all type safeties. What have you seen from Landon Collins so far this fall? You know, it's been a little up and down uh, for Landon so far this year. Uh, you know, two weeks ago in the Ole Miss game, uh, he was partly responsible for uh, two touchdowns in the fourth quarter from Bo Wallace. Uh, both those plays, he showed late recognition, late eyes. Uh, he was beat uh, once the receiver was able to gain a step on the corner. Landon Collins was too late getting over in his responsibilities. Uh, and so the recognition, anticipation, kind of, you know, you, you have to question right now. But uh, from an athletic standpoint, he's got it all there for a, a bigger guy. He can hit. The ball skills are there. He can cover like some corners can cover. And he, he played better last week against Arkansas. Um, I had the big interception in the fourth quarter. So I think Landon Collins, when you look at the traits, 
you look at uh, just the physical makeup that he has, and I think, you know, safeties are so valuable in today's game, guys that can cover tight ends, guys that can cover receivers, play zone, play man, can do everything. Landon Collins is in that mold, and so um, as long as he continues to show better recognition and, you know, cuts down on those mistakes, uh, I think Landon Collins could be destined for the top ten. The next two picks, I was really surprised. You have two quarterbacks going six and seven. Uh, Jameis Winston going to the St. Louis Rams, obviously just a redshirt sophomore, no guarantee that he's going to come out. But Jeff Fisher has shown in the past that he's not afraid to shy away from some of those guys with some off-the-field baggage, so that marriage would make some sense there. At seven, Tennessee, Connor Cook is a guy I wanted to ask you about. 6'4", 220 pounds, kid out of Michigan State, in his second year as a starter, another guy who may not come out this year, uh, but obviously has tons of talent. Decision-making has been up and down. What have you seen from him this fall? Right, and if you go by just uh, you know completion percentage and look at the box scores, Connor Cook might not be all that appealing. I mean, two weeks ago against Nebraska, he had 38% completions. Against Purdue last week, 51%. Uh, he had interceptions in both games. So going by the box score, uh, you know you don't see much uh, that really screams top 10 pick. But when you put on the tape, uh, he just makes NFL throw after NFL throw. He anticipates passing lanes. Uh, he can read coverages. He doesn't wait for his receivers to get open. He throws to a spot, and he anticipates it well. There's a very catchable ball, understands touch, very fearless as a passer. He trusts his target, gives them a chance to make a play on the ball. And so I think with Connor Cook, we've seen him progressively get better and better with every snap he's taken at Michigan State. Look past the box score and look at what the, the physical skills he brings to the field to me, Connor Cook belongs in that discussion as a top 10 early first round type of player. I think we get, you know, Marcus Mariota, uh, Brett Hundley, James Winston. Those three guys have been the three that I think most talk about as possible top 10 picks. But to me, Connor Cook absolutely belongs in that discussion. I think he could be this year's almost like a Ryan Tannehill where so many people are surprised. Wait, this guy is going to be in the top 10 pick? Well, hey, Connor Cook, he deserves it. He, he's, he's that type of player, so I would not be surprised. If he decides to come out as a junior, we see him go that high uh, next spring. Rounding out the top ten, at number eight, you've got Minnesota taking pass catcher Devin Funches, 6'5", 235, played tight end last year, listed as a wide receiver for the Wolverines this year. Just a beast at the catch point. I'm not going to argue that. I mean, the kid's a, a ridiculous talent. Another junior who may not come out. Sean Oakman out of Baylor, 6'8", 285 out, uh, out of Baylor, going number nine to Atlanta. And then Randy Gregory, the edge rusher from Nebraska, going to the Saints at 10th overall. I wanted to fast forward a bit. You've got the Eagles at 29th. I'm not going to pick. That's a battle for another day, whether or not they should be picking 32nd. But you've got P.J. Williams, the corner out of Florida State, six foot, 195. I know you guys have him in the, the mid-4-5 range right now. Really talented kid, another junior who may or may not come out. What have you seen from P.J. Williams this fall? Well, you know, P.J. doesn't – when he steps on the field, he's not going to be the fastest guy. He's not going to be the biggest guy. Um, and that might go against kind of maybe what Chip wants uh, at the position. But I think you get a very, a very instinctive guy. Um, his, uh, his athletic uh, ability in short space is great. Uh, his fluid hip movements, move change of direction. Uh, uses length well. Uh, he has experience in press, off man. Um, I think he needs to do a better job of getting stronger for the position. Uh, he's average at best as a tackler. He'll lower his shoulders. He'll be tough. He'll go in there. and um, He's not a, a, afraid of contact. 
but he will be out physical by bigger receivers at times, lacks that ideal girth that you want. Um, but just in terms of his athletic standpoint and his ability to make plays on the ball, um, you know, he really, that's where he really shines. Um, you know, his play awareness, he's instinctive. He's rarely caught off guard. He's a very assignment-sound type of player, um, natural in reverse, doesn't take a lot of wasted steps. I like his eye use. Uh, so a lot of read-react quickness there, uh, which you want at the corner position. So P.J. Williams, I think a kid who, if he does come out, uh, uh, someone that could work his way in that first-round mix, uh, not, not that slam-dunk first-round type of player, uh, but a guy that could be, you know, with a, uh, you know, Marcus Peters out of Washington, if he comes out, Trey Wayne out of Michigan State, I think those, those guys are going to be top 20, top 25 types. P.J. Williams could, could be in that conversation in that maybe late first-round mix. Uh, so we'll, we'll just see him how he uh, finishes out the year and if he declares or not. But so far, early, early returns have been positive. Peters is a guy that I wanted to ask you about because I know you're really, really high on him. I've yet to watch him. Another junior who, look, I mean, you look at this junior cornerback class, you brought up Trey, Trey Waynes as well, uh, really talented group overall. Where do you think Peters, right now, obviously it's early, it's mid-October, where do you think he ranks in this group right now? To me, Marcus Peters is a top corner, uh, draft-eligible corner in the country. Uh, it, you, you look at the combination of, uh, his size and speed and, you know, what he can do on the football field. He's kind of what you know, I think a lot of NFL teams wanted Justin Gilbert to be. Um, you know, just that bigger, lengthy corner. He's not quite as fast as Gilbert. He's probably not going to run a 4-3, but um, he's fast enough. And he has the reaction time that you want, uh, spatial awarenesses, the field coverage and float, uh, and really attack the ball in the air, uh, very good ball skills. Uh, he, he can press at the line of scrimmage. He has the footwork to, and speed to flip his hips and stick with wide receivers downfield. He did an excellent job against Ty Montgomery a couple weeks ago when Stanford uh, went up to Seattle. Um, and he does, still has a few areas you know he can improve upon. Uh, he was suspended for the Illinois game uh, for a violation of team rules. Uh, he is highly aggressive, and he will get called sometimes for too much contact and will get himself in trouble. But when you look at the body of work, the size, the speed, uh, ball skills, uh, the way he carries himself, his instincts. Uh, to me, Marcus Peters could be a top 10 type of player. Uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me at all if he's the first corner drafted next spring. Dane, the last guy I wanted to ask you about, we talked about the quarterback position earlier with, uh, with Bryce Petty. Dak Prescott is kind of taking the college football world by storm right now out of Mississippi State. Obviously, the, the comparisons to Tim Tebow because of the Dan Mullen connection uh, are really unavoidable at this point. But what have you seen from Dak Prescott at this point? He's not, you know, obviously he doesn't play in one of those conservative systems. He's uh, been one of those spread-type quarterbacks who's got some movement skills and is not the best thrower of the football. Uh, what have you seen from Prescott? Where do you think his stock is right now at this point? Obviously just a junior, so he could stay with the Bulldogs and stay there for another year. Yeah, you know, I, I've been extremely impressed, just like I'm sure everyone else has. With Dak Prescott's improvement uh, from a year ago. Um, and just what he's been able to do on the field, uh, above average awareness as a, as a passer. He recognizes things very quickly, uh, which is just a, a very, very awesome to see from a college junior. Uh, you don't see that a lot from those, from those guys. And so uh, he goes through his progressions quick. He fires. He gets it out. Um, he, he shows an ability to use his eyes, hold defenders, just a much more natural feel in the passing game than he's shown in previous years. Uh, he has a quick memory. He's going to forget mistakes. He's going to be a leader on the field. 
Now, he does predetermine some throws. Uh, he relies on a lot of back shoulder patterns, which we saw against Auburn. Uh, you know, defenses will pick up on that uh, and pick off some, some passes, and he, he did have two interceptions against Auburn. But, he, he, like I said, he forgets those mistakes. He, he rallies the troops, and he just he grinds. Uh, he's obviously a big physical uh, runner. Uh, just ask LSU and what he did down at Baton Rouge a couple weeks ago. He doesn't have that huge elite arm. He doesn't have, uh, you know, that, that zip that you want on every pass. Um, but I think he has good enough arm strength. And, and, you know, Todd Blackledge was the first that I heard use that Tim Tebow comparison. And, and I think it fits, and more than just the Mullen connection, but I think there are a little – there are some mechanical differences, but in terms of uh, the arm talent, the composure, uh, the mobility and power, and then the leadership, I think it all fits. Uh, to me, Dak Prescott is, is a type of guy that, you know, the staff don't always look great. Uh, last week uh, against Auburn, 52% completions. He had more interceptions thrown than passing touchdowns. But he makes up for a lot of that uh, through the air with what he does on the ground. He has a touchdown in every single – a rushing touchdown in every single game except for the for the opener. Um, I think it's eight on the year. So just an awesome guy on the ground. But he's also progressed as a passer, which to me has been the most impressive thing we've seen from him this year. Dane, you are the man. I really appreciate you joining us once again here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky Football Podcast. We'll catch up with you later on this fall. Great stuff. Thanks for any time. All right, so that's Dane Brugler. I want to thank Dane and once again thank Greg Cosell from NFL Films. We'll see you next week in another edition of the Eagle Eye on the Sky Football Podcast.